You know, most problems in healthcare are fixed already. Primary care is already cured on the fringes, reversing burnout, physician shortages, bad business models, forced buyouts, factory medicine, high deductible insurance that doesn't pay docs and is totally inaccessible to most of the employees. The big squeeze of always accelerated costs and decelerated reimbursements. Meet those making a difference with the host, Ron Barshop, CEO of Beacon Clinics. Welcome to Primary Care Cures. We have as our guest, Dave Berg, CEO of Redirect Health and also CEO and co-founder of Arrowhead Health Centers. Uh, I'm a customer of the first, not of the second. I guess if I sprained my ankle today, I'd be a customer of both. But let me tell you what burns my chaps more than anything. There are a lot of pundits, a lot of thought leaders, a lot of uh, journalists, and a lot of heads of corporations that talk about how do we fix healthcare? Well, we oughta, or they say we should, or let's think about, they're always talking about theoretical solutions that aren't in practice working and are politically impossible or structurally impossible or a joke. And in fact, let's just call it a joke. So there's nothing that burns me up more when I hear a sentence starting with, we, we should, we ought to. I don't, let them get ahead of the parade and make that change. Quit talking about it. Today we're talking with a gentleman who is making the change. He does or uses the word should or ought to. He is doing it very quietly in his own way. He started here in Arizona and he's now expanded across all 50 states with an offering that uh, so good my company uses it, Redirect Health. Um, we'll talk a little bit about that today, but I really want to talk about your journey, Dave, your personal journey. And it starts when, in my story I know of you, when you're five years old, um, you were raised without a, your biological father and you used to play a game on the stairs and how did that affect the rest of your life? Well, when I was about five years old, my, uh, there was a big box at Christmas and I thought that it would make a great toy to go down the stairs in and it didn't work so well. I woke up a day later, missed Christmas. Um, don't only remember Christmas. I remember being upset that I missed the uh, Santa Claus coming and I thought everyone was lying to me because I didn't even remember Christmas happening, um, but that's where it started. And uh, I've had a, I've had a number of concussions since. I, didn't, I was thrown off a horse when I was seven, and uh, woke up a day later. Um, don't remember any of the pictures of me on airplanes or on the horse or playing mini golf. I just woke up at home and days later, and um, again a little bit confused as a child of how is that even possible? There's a picture of me riding a horse and, and an airplane. I've never been on an airplane in my life in that, at that time. I don't remember it still. And then I was in a very bad car accident. And um, I woke up about four days after getting out of the ICU intensive care unit. And I have no memory of being in the intensive care unit. So I've had those concussions. But I've, I've uh, always struggled. Though I didn't know it was a problem um, because I didn't know any different with memorizing. So I could never, I couldn't, I could never remember three words or a poem or the national anthem or you can't sing happy birthday to you. I would not have confidence. I could write it down. I could, if somebody was, I can mouth it. If somebody else was doing it, the words were there. It's just, I'd, I've never relied on memory. I've, I've built, had workarounds. I've been, so Dave is CEO of two companies that have over 400 employees that serve thousands of customers that have had 2 million 
clinical office visits and he can't remember the words to the Star Spangled Banner. And I'm not saying that as a joke. I'm saying that. Yeah, I could probably get happy birthday out. I could probably figure that one out. <laughs> Star Spangled, I, I, I would struggle. I couldn't do that one. So, so Dave had to do what I call a workaround or a game-changing way that he could get through junior high, high school, so we could actually get through college, get through advanced degrees in your chiropractic school. What were your three favorite workarounds in terms of memorization tricks? Oh, I can't remember that, Ron. <laughs> <laughs> I watched you remember the name not only of a customer who was a friend of yours, but you remembered all her children's names. How the hell did you do that? I don't remember my kids, my friend's wife's name, much less her kid's name. So uh, uh, it's, it's not easy for me to put in words what I do, but I, I, I turn where lots of people rely on memorization of many different components and many different the, the compli complicated components that fit together and the complexity of how they interact with one another. Um, I've always said, okay, how can I make it simpler? How can I just simplify it and turn it into one thing? And the easiest way, and this won't be a complete answer for you, and you see me draw some pictures of it, so I'll let you guide me. If you want me to describe the pictures, I'm, I'm happy to. Um, but it's about understanding who and understanding the purpose, right? So when I, I don't necessarily remember what's in a room when I walk into it or who's in the room, but I remember who that room is, is due to serve, right? And I will be able to say, this room has a purpose, or this situation has a purpose for this person. And if I can understand that, not even necessarily memorize it, but just really understand it, then I can reproduce all the data points around it. So I am really good at, you give me 10 data points today, and I will then give you an answer. Okay, you me, give me the same 10 data points 20 years from now, I'm confident I'll give you the same answer. Let me remind you of a strategy used, I think, in high school or college. One of my workarounds for that situation is uh, I would go to class. So right away, I had an advantage. But I would, after the class, I would go up to the teacher and, and I would say, here are the, here's the most important thing I heard you say today. Here's the most important two things I heard you say today. Would you agree? And they would say yes or no, or don't forget about this. And I just take note of it because very likely those are the, that was just guiding me to the most important things. Cause I know I'm not going to remember 10 things. I I'll figure out if you just tell me the, the one thing the most important, I'll understand it better. I'll understand all the other components better. So we do that. Dave, you had a really cool work around for getting the test questions before they were uh, put in front of you again, because of your memory lapses and issues and your, your mental mm -hmm. struggles. What was your secret there? Yeah. So once again, I had three concussions before I was 13. Uh, so as I was going to high school and uh, I had two concussions after that, but I had three then. So memory was never a strong suit. Matter of fact, I really struggled with memory. So I had workarounds my whole, since I was young, one of the workarounds to get through school is I would show up to every class and I'd make the teachers like me. And then after the class, I would go and ask them, I say, I just, debrief here are the one or two things i heard that really seem important to me did i get them right and then you had a strategy for finals what was right that? so so then what happened is um what i learned is that the teachers would kind of tell me and guide me as to what are the most important things from that class and uh around the ninth grade i um uh, i just a lot of it was by fluke and i'd see some results and then i'd say i'm going to create a system out of this because this there's this is powerful so I remember in the ninth grade, I went up to the teacher and I was about to start the studying and it seemed a little too complex. It was all, I didn't know where to start. And I just asked her and I said, 
hey, if I, I'm going to start studying for your exam and um, I'm thinking I'm going to start here, is that make sense? And she said, kind of gave me, guided it, and I did really well in the exam. Basically, she kind of told me how to study for her exam. And then I recognized at some point around there, maybe the 10th grade, that they all had a deadline for a month before. So I started thinking, well, why don't I just go before they write the exam and I'll have a discussion with them before they write the exam. And it turned into, um, I kind of knew what was on the exam because I had discussions with the, my teachers about what I should be studying. It got to the point where I'm in a senior year now. And, and in Canada at that time, where I was in Toronto, um, there were 13 grades. So there's five high school grades. So it, I had five years to get good at this. And it didn't work in college, by the way. I had to change my system. I it, heard because the classes got bigger. But but here's what I got to in my final year. That was like I would I'd honed it in. I was a master. I would go up to every one of my teachers every day after class and go this. So they got used to it. They get used to the conversation. I got it to 30 second conversations after every class. I'm, it's easy to become a, a a teacher's favorite when you pay attention and you're and you're interested like that. But I'd go up to them. I go, um, Hey, uh, Mrs. Jones. I'm about to start studying for your exam. It's really important to me. What are the one or two things, if I knew them right now, would really speed up and enhance my learning and my studying for your exam? And it would always be a question they never heard before. And it would be, they'd reflect on it and they would basically just do their thinking for their exam preparation right there with me. And once I knew the mindset they were going into the exam with, I could, like the direction they were going to go, I could kind of figure out all the other questions they were going to ask. I didn't have to tell me all the questions. They just had to tell, if they told me that big domino, right? That, that one thing that was going to guide all their thinking, I could know what they were going to focus on, whether it was history or math or English or. So now we're in college and you've got a new gambit. I will call the Janice gambit. It's <laughs> so a whole I, new world. So I get to college now and, um, I, ne I never, the system was not designed for, for classes of 300, 400, 500 people. It was just wasn't designed for that. It was designed for a class of 25 or 30 where you, where kids are skipping class and teacher never knows your name, right? Or does know your name. So in college, um, I wasn't going to get away with that. And I really liked the math and the physics, um, computer science, because I like things where I didn't have to memorize things because I couldn't, but I like things where I had to know principles and figure things out. Mm -hmm. I've, I've become very good at figuring things out, very good at physics, very good at math. You would have probably been writing code today or you've been leading an engineering team had you definitely. Not had and, and that's what I wanted yeah. to do at the University of Toronto. I wanted to go into engineering. Um, so I was taking all the advanced science or advanced maths and calculus and um, um, physics. Mm -hmm advanced. And when I got there, I noticed that over half of all my classes were repeating the year. Mm. It was, it was that hard. And I also noticed that, um, I couldn't even understand the language that was being spoken in the first 10 minutes of the first class. Career change. Uh, it, I wasn't really thinking career change yet. I was thinking survival. I was in survival okay. mode okay. now. And, uh, but I had met this girl during a tour of the campus and um, we were in different classes, but we shared this one physics lab. She was in some really easy pre-med physics, and I was in this really hard pre-engineering type physics. But we shared the same physical space. So we met each other. We met each other, and uh, she had a really pretty smile. And, uh, and I noticed that she was taking a lot of notes and, uh, during a tour, an orientation tour. Class even started. 
And she was just like, and I thought, well, that's kind of weird. I've never done that before. And I saw some highlights on her notes. And I go, well, that's a little over the top. That's a little crazy. But she was really nice. And um, we had, uh, I'm a long story short, but uh, my roommate and I had a system where we wanted to help girls who had to travel in on the subway a long distance to have a place to land so they wouldn't have to hang out the library. So we let them just use our uh, our dorm room anytime they wanted to study and use our fridge and, and whatever. Smart so, guy. Yeah. So we had a system. It, it, it was a system just to be helpful and useful to these, uh, these poor girls who had to travel in on subway and didn't have anywhere to stay between classes. One of them's name was Janice. Was Janice. And so she came by and uh, so I became friends. And uh, about three weeks into my classes, I was like, I am so screwed right now. I have no chance of passing this. Any of my classes. I have no, I have no chances of even surviving a semester in these classes. And uh, so I decided to change all my classes over to Janice's classes. Um, and it just happened she was taking sciences, but it was pre-med. Mm -hmm. And so I did really well in pre-med. There was a lot of collaboration between Janice and I. Um, she, Are you saying you shared her notes and highlights? All of them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so you she, traded friendship for tutoring. I mean, more than tutoring, you actually used her notes to study for the test. Right. And, I, and some of those tests probably at least half of them. Yeah. I did better on the test than she did using her notes. <laughs> and, but it was typically, so she would do really well in the classes where there's a lot of memorizing. Right. She was, she has an incredible memory. Just amazing. There isn't a song that comes on where she can't sing the lyrics. If she's heard it one time in the last 50 years, Yeah. she can, she can uh, sing it. Mm -hmm. um, I, whereas I can't, I couldn't even tell you, I couldn't even tell you the, uh, the lyrics of three words of any, song so dave let's let's go past college you you now your career it looks like it's changing looks like a biology future is in your uh cards instead of a math engineering sciences uh future because you found what turns out to i guess be the love of your life right yeah we, we've been together now for we met when we were 18 um now we're both 54 55 and um and we've all we've gone to school together. We practiced together. We worked together. We started a business together. Um, so a lot of what we've I'm going to say all of what we've done is because of that teamwork. We have got the most return on that teamwork of I mean of anyone I know of in the industry that we work in right now. So so now you're heading into the medical world. I think you were pretty confident you couldn't get through medical school, right? Or perhaps even yeah, I didn't want to. I mean, okay. it was, it just seems so hard. A but, lot of memorizing, but Dr. Chiropractor, you're taking virtually the same classes except for anatomy and a couple of other classes. Mm -hmm. It's, it's medical school. Mm -hmm. You chose that path. Why did you choose that when you weren't going to have the Janus gambit anymore? Well, chiropractic college, <clears throat> the classes were smaller. I'd already gone through four years at university of Toronto with Janus. So it's not like I abandoned the first I just, it gave me, bought me some time and some oxygen because I still did it, right? There's stuff that worked. I tweaked the system. I had another resource to put into the system to make it work. But the overall principle of I need to know what are the main things? What's the, what are the, what's the main thing if I knew it right now would enhance my ability to learn the, the important things for the test, right? That part didn't change. The principle didn't change. How I got there, talking to a teacher one-on-one -on -one using Janice, those are just different tactics. So switching to another tactic is, that's not the main deal. What was the main deal is that I was really clear that there was going to be one or two things, if I knew them, would help me learn 
effectively for the exams. Okay, so I'm gonna take you now to the next stage of your life, your career. <clears throat> You're married, Janice is going through medical school and you are as close to an abject failure as a chiropractor as a man can be. You <laughs> told me a story yesterday about without uh -oh. two years of free rent, you wouldn't have had a profit and thank God when it was almost over, an offer came in to buy your practice and start paying the rent, which would have put you under. You didn't have enough to your name to make rub two cents together. And she basically is running that practice much more efficiently and effectively today. How do you go from a lousy businessman as a chiropractor with so simple of a model to now running several hundred and 400 employees? No, 200. 200 employees. You have uh, 2 million visits that you've done in the, in the course of your career. Um, you run this practice with your wife and, and there's almost no way you would go corporate because the pressures of corporatization don't exist for you and you wouldn't even let allow their model into your model. Your pressures aren't, so 38% of PCP still are independent, the rest have been corporatized and, and the, the change is happening so rapidly that there's almost gonna be none left because of their referral patterns are so valuable. Tell me now how you went from dope to smartest guy in the room. I changed the game. Right, that's all I did. And I'll give you an analogy. If, uh, if I'm the only guy who can skate, I kind of want to play my sport on ice. If I'm the only guy with skates, just give me ice and I win. It doesn't matter if it's golf. doesn't matter if it's basketball or baseball or football. If I can play on ice and I'm the only guy with skates, I win. So a lot of it's about just figuring out what my unique abilities are and then creating a, an arena or a structure around my unique ability and, um, and building a team that can support my unique ability and I can support their unique abilities. And um, that's, uh, I'm, I'm gonna guess your unique ability, Dave, is um, understanding systems from on high and implementing those into a business. So you can take any business problem and break it down into a, a system that you can understand and then they can translate it into operational um, uh, operational procedures day yeah. to day. Yeah, I am, I am world-class getting better and better and better. And I get energy from seeing trends and patterns and associations between relationships and components in a system and then simplifying it into one thing that, and then watching that one thing and then making adjustments according to the movement of that one thing or that one thing getting off or going forward. Uh, so positive or negative movement, that one thing. Um, but I'm, I'm just, world-class is seeing the patterns and associations and trends so that I can make predictions. So before the frustration or the movement off target even happens, I can make little adjustments, but I can create systems that create that monitor it. And I create systems that, um, that make the adjustments. So I, I mean, that's what I think about as we've talked, you've seen me do that oh my God. dozens I've, and dozens of times, hundreds, but it's yeah. natural. You have a hundred. Let me give you an example. One system folks that are listening. We have, in front of me right now, a guy who has thought through this problem and solved it. How do you make a patient, and he'll call it a customer, not a patient, feel like a million dollars, you are intentionally late 8% of the time. And what do you do with that patient that you're late 8% of the time? And you're intentionally 8% of the time late. What do you do to turn that around into? All right, words matter. Yeah. So I'm not intentionally late. If I do put no extra energy into my system, I am 8% late. Okay. So that's not intentional, but what I don't, what I'm not is I'm not intentionally only 4% late because that adds extra work, extra money, extra time. So I'm okay with putting no energy into my system on a day-to-day -day basis and being 8% late. Yeah, but I'm not, I, I'm not, I could, I could be 2% late if I wanted to put energy into it. But the reason I don't want to put more energy into it 
is because I can extract incredible return out of that 8%. Mm -hmm. I can make it so that all 8%, so if I see um, a thousand people, I can make it so that 80 of those people who I'm late with, I can promise they'll be on time, meaning I'll see them within 15 minutes of appointment time. But the eight, 80 people out of a thousand that I'm late on will give me a better net promoter score combined than the other people mm-hmm. that I, that I'm only th- net promoter score is basically a measure of customer satisfaction. Correct. Okay. And loyalty too. And referability and that kind of thing. Because now they're getting VIP treatment next time. They're almost getting a hall pass. So this is one of about a hundred components we can talk about. We're not going to have five hours today to talk about that, but here's a guy again, as a individual businessman, I would say failure is a nice word for what you were. You were barely getting by, and now you're. I thought I was just learning. Okay. Sometimes slower than I wanted to, but I was just learning. But I now, still got there. But now you're running, um, really, what I think is the cutting edge insurance and healthcare mm-hmm. delivery product in, in the country right now, out right here in Arizona. And thank God you're spreading your gospel out to the other fifty mm-hmm. states. And I'm a customer mm-hmm. and a very happy one. So, do you want me to tell them the answer to the magic trick of how you can in, how you can allow yourself to break a promise and then those people are uh, raving fans? Please. So it's as simple as this: at fourteen minutes, we promise people will see them within fifteen minutes. Eight percent of the time, um, on average, we can't fulfill that promise. So at the fourteen-minute wait period, our trained staff goes around the counter, sits next to the customer in the waiting area where other people are listening. And say, Ron, I am so sorry. It looks like we're not going to get you in 15 minutes like we promised. But you're next in line. I can't imagine it's more than five or 10 minutes. If it's longer than that, I'll let you know right away. Is there anything I can do to make you more comfortable while you wait? And then silence and stare. And that is important. The silence and the stare. The empathetic stare. The only answer to that is, no, I'm okay. Thank you. Thank you so much. That is the move, and that is the 100% move. Ron, now you, if I do that to you, if a young person does that to you, and they've been trained, they've done it thousands of times already, so they're good at it, they're confident at it, are you really not gonna give this experience a 10 out of 10 experience? You can't do it, you're a human being. You gotta be an awful human being to not give us a 10 out of 10 when that happened. Because here's the thing, everybody thinks that they want their doctor to be on time. They don't really care about that so much as they care, but they do, but they care more about the respect that shows or the disrespect that shows when they're, it's hard for us to process disrespect. And, and that sounds, it sounds petty to say, I feel disrespected. It sounds reasonable to say that doctor is an hour late, right? Or whatever. So what we do is we just, we give people so much respect that we distract them from the fact that we were late. They really are. And they, that respect is more important to them, that they matter feeling right now. And not only will you go and tell people when you leave about this story, did you know they have a 15 minute wait a policy? I've never heard of that in a doctor's office. And when they were, were, and they came and apologized when they were at 14 minutes, like, what is that all about? You're going to tell that story to your wife, to your coworkers, to your employees, somebody. But here's the thing, the three people sitting around you in the waiting area, they're going to tell that story to people too. So this is a way of creating a differentiator around that negative brand perception that everybody has with healthcare. Let me give you another example of David's. That's just a system, right? A process that we've been running that now for about 12 years. So Dave has another, I could talk about a dozen, two dozen of these, but I walked into his exam room and I opened a drawer and then I went into another exam room and I saw the exact layout 
of the drawer, all the utensils, all the swabs, everything was in the exact same order. And then I looked up at a cabinet and there was a picture of what should be in each drawer. In other words, you've actually thought through to make it user-friendly for every MA who's cleaning a room, who's supplying a room, for every doctor to find exactly what they're looking for and put their hands on it practically blindfolded. You've got charts hanging on the corner of every office that show here's the protocols when they need a vaccine for X or for Y. You've got 30 or 40 or 50 sheets there, so it's crystal clear. You can show the patient, here's what that needs to happen to make that happen. You so, know, you systematize every aspect of yeah. care. So the more that's important. What you said about the drawers. Here's what's even more important. When we first met two years ago, it was the same picture, the same drawer in a different clinic. That clinic didn't even exist two years ago. The one you were in yesterday, and it was the same. The drawer looked the same. Any of our clinics, the drawers look the same. So it's not just about location, but it's over time. So if you go into my clinic twenty years from now there's a very good chance that picture might still be used. But who knows? Maybe we have electronic um, digital uh, reflex hammers. Who knows? Mm -hmm. But there's a very good chance that those drawers are going to look the same over time and over geography. And so it's a decision that's been made once that now applies thousands of times with ever any mental attention needing to be given to it ever again, ever. And if we, do, if it is, if we are going to give more attention to it, and we're going to change this can be because there's real value that's needed or, or Dave, happens. David, are you optimistic, pessimistic, or neutral about the future of primary care? With where you are, what brought you here, with where you are today, um, I would say that most of our listeners probably are not too excited about the future of primary care as a viable institution. And it has to be. If without it, the whole system's got a big, big, yeah. big problem. I, I don't think about the question that way. I don't think about the problem that way. Um, to me, the premise behind that question, that question is that what matters in healthcare are the silos of healthcare, whether it's insurance silo or hospital silo or MD silo or DO silo, silo or cardiology silo or orthopedic silo or chiropractic or primary care. I, I, I don't think about it that way. And I think that if I did think about it that way, it would lead to more complexity and more um, problems. The way I think about it is what is the consumer going to need? And um, Jeff Bezos said it awesome. When somebody asked him a question that was like, what you, something about what do you think the customer is going to, um, like how are you preparing for the future to match the changes that are going to happen? He said something like, oh, I don't think about that way. I think about what's never going to change in the future and how do I evolve to do that better and better? People are always going to want their, their products um, faster and cheaper. So everything we do is about making it faster and cheaper. What Bezos did is he said it's about the customer, right? It's about the customer. So what is the customer going to want in the future is how I think about it. Not about what the primary care provider silo is going to want or the orthopedic silo or the insurance silo or the government silo. I don't need that. So it's irrelevant to me is my point. It, it is totally irrelevant. And it's not about, is it, is it going to get worse? Is it going to get better? I'm just saying it's going to become less relevant to even think about it. However, anybody in any of those silos that wants to focus on the customer's um, need for speed and effectiveness and um, efficiency, faster and better and cheaper, anybody who focuses on those things are gonna be the winners. Anybody who thinks they can do successfully, be successful without considering the consumer, I think their life is gonna be miserable. You're listening to Primary Care Cures. We're speaking with Dave Berg. He is the founder and CEO of Arrowhead Health Centers.
a 1% performer in primary care for sure, one that will last as long as he wants it to last, and his wife Janice wants it to last. So uh, Dave, in closing out today, tell us how people can reach you and tell us your vision of the future for primary care. So the, the best way to reach me is um, through my email, david.berg, B-E-R-G, like iceberg, at redirecthealth.com. Um, our websites are arrowheadhealth.com, and you can see our, that's our clinic websites here in Phoenix. And then redirecthealth.com is our, um, is the, the company that creates health plans for small businesses all over the country and for their employees, but also for families who, where the traditional insurance model doesn't work anymore and uh, who don't feel like they have meaningful access to healthcare and they don't feel prepared for the future if something happens. Um, that's the problem we saw with redirect health. Um, that's the best way to get a hold of me. Your okay. last question was the future of... Give me a two-sentence uh, thumbnail on what the future of primary care looks like from your perspective. I believe that primary care to, to survive has to shorten the gap between the consumer, meaning the purchaser and the user, the decision makers, with the money and themselves. The more They have to get rid of the middlemen the drug companies, the pharmacy benefit managers, the insurance companies, the government, the closer they can get to the consumer and the, the ultimate source of the money, um, the better they're going to do. And I don't think they survive if they don't. And I don't think they survive if they focus on revenue. It's interesting you said uh, that. Can I finish revenue. this point? Sure, they, sure. I, do, I have no belief at all that any primary care provider can win the game if they focus on revenue. It's about focusing on profit. So less revenue with more profit. And that means getting rid of friction for the consumer, getting rid of waste, getting rid of unnecessary administration and paperwork, and being the advocate for it. When you order an MRI, if a primary care provider wants to be successful, I believe they're going to have to know how to help their patient get that MRI for $300 and not just say, use your insurance and go pay $1,200 out of your deductible over there. Any primary care provider that thinks they, they, they can just do that, I think they're going to be out of luck. Very soon now. Very good. Dave, thank you again. Thank you for listening. You want to shake things up? There's two things you can do for us. One, go to primarycarecures.com for show notes and links to our guests. And number two, help us spotlight what's working in primary care by listening on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribing and leave us a review. It helps our megaphone more than you know. Until next episode.